0: Loving Father, we thank you for this this Resurrection Day, this day in which we celebrate the greatest event in all of history. Father, we pray that this morning you would uh, make our hearts attentive to your word, to that which you have powerfully set before us, that which radically transforms our perception about why we're here and where we're headed. And we ask that you would pierce our hearts and make us more yielded and submitted to your eternal purposes for the sake and for the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Back when, uh, when my kids were still trying to master their first one and two syllable words, I had fun trying to teach them the phrase, deferral of gratification. It came out in all kinds of contorted ways when they tried to say it. To a small child, every need cries out for immediate gratification, right? but that's not how uh, real life works when you become an an adult when you're not a child anymore all the really valuable things come on the basis of time and discipline and often hardship in the immortal words of pink floyd you can't have your pudding if you don't eat your meat If you want to go out to have a nice dinner at a restaurant with your family, you're not going to get very far if you haven't done the work to make the money so that you can pay for the meal and the tip and the car to get there and the insurance and the gasoline for the car. Any reasonably mature adult has already had plenty of experience with the deferral or delay Of gratification. In fact, we practice it every morning when our alarm goes off and we get up and defer the next round of sleep. But what would you think of an adult whose choices and actions were never molded by anything in the future? Who considered only that which he could lay his hands on today? Now, most of us have met some people like that if we've been around for a while. One day, uh, I attempted to strike up a conversation with the man in East Dallas guy I just met on the street. He was probably about ten years younger than I am today. And very shortly after after I tried to strike up that conversation, I realized that he he was incapable of staying on one track of thought long enough to finish a sentence because. He had so destroyed his brain with alcohol that there was very little left. I'd hate to think about what his liver looked like. Now, this was a guy who had clearly lived for quite some time in complete disregard of anything other than immediate gratification. And it had robbed him of everything of value. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying I consider myself better than that guy. In fact, when I walked away from that very short conversation with grief in my heart, the thought that I walked away with is there but for the grace of God go I. Now that may seem like an extreme example of what happens when people live with regard only to the here and now. But I chose that example from my own life because I believe that what God calls us to as his children is the polar opposite of that example. And it's just as extreme. You see, God calls us to give absolutely no thought to the here and now. He calls us to have our eyes firmly fixed instead on that which is laid up in the future, where the resurrected Christ is already seated at the right hand of God. On this Resurrection Day, we're going to look at what God's Word says about how we pass out of death into life and then how we live that life by looking only forward and upward. Or to put it another way, we're going to consider what it means to live always in light of the resurrection power and the resurrection promise of God. Now, here's where we're going this morning. It's a very concise outline. First, resurrection faith justifies. Secondly, resurrection faith sanctifies. And finally, resurrection hope clarifies. In Romans 3 and 4 and numerous other passages, our justification is presented to us as a gift that comes only by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a person that Paul prominently sets before us as an example or a template of the kind of faith that he's talking about. And that person is Abraham. We've seen, this, we've seen these references to Abraham several times in our study of Romans. Paul goes so far as to say in Romans 4.16 that all the true recipients of God's righteousness and God's promise are those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the faith through which we are justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God, is, to capture it in just four words, the faith of Abraham. And the faith by which we have been justified is the same faith by which we are now sanctified, by which we are moved to practical holiness. But what is it that it, That is at the essence of that faith, if we look at abraham there 's something that comes up over and over in the descriptions of his faith when paul especially when paul 's talking about the content of his faith there 's one facet of god 's character and works that is in focus over and over, and that is that Abraham believed in the resurrection power and the resurrection promise of God. Now, for verbal efficiency, I'm going to call that resurrection faith. I'm not trying to be gimmicky. I'm just using that as shorthand to say faith in the resurrection power and promise of God. What I'm talking about will be be clearer as we proceed. In Romans chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, Paul talks about this faith by which we are Justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God. He says, for this reason, it, that is justification, is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. In order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who were of the law, the Jews, but also to those who were of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So the one in whom Abraham believed is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which did not exist. Now, I'm going to ask one of the kids in 6th grade or younger to answer this next question. 6th grade or younger. There's a word we have for bringing someone who is dead to life. What is that word? Pardon? Resurrection. Resurrection. That's the word. That's the word, resurrection. I saw some some raising hands. I'm sorry I didn't didn't catch the hands. That's resurrection. Paul, right after he talks about Abraham's faith in the God who brings the dead to life, amplifies that idea in verses 18 to 22 when he talks in very specific terms about the faith of Abraham. He says, In hope against hope, he, that's Abraham, believed in order that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old, And the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, also, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. What promise is this talking about? It's talking about God's promise to create life through Abraham's good as dead body and Sarah's already dead womb. To give life to the dead and to call into being that which does not exist. Again. When that which was formerly dead is made alive, we call that resurrection. When Paul says Abraham was fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform, he's talking about Abraham's faith in God's resurrection power and resurrection promise. And then Paul goes on and he expands this picture that he's painting. He says it applies not just to Abraham, it applies to us who follow after Abraham. He says, now not for his sake only, Abraham's sake, was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. We, like Abraham, received God's righteousness given to us as a gift. On the basis of faith faith in what faith in him who raised jesus our lord from the dead abraham's faith in god's resurrection power and promise justified him in the eyes of god and you and i who have believed in jesus christ are justified on the same basis for abraham That power and promise, that resurrection power and promise was manifested through the covenant son, Isaac, through whom Messiah would come. For us, that power and promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The end of the covenant line that came from Isaac, the one in whose resurrection we have become partakers. In both cases, the true object of our faith is the same the one who fulfills the promise, and that's Jesus Christ. All right. So it is by resurrection faith that we are justified, and it is by resurrection faith that we are sanctified. Faith in God's ability and intent to provide the promised descendants to Abraham was only the beginning of Abraham's faith. Many years later, Isaac, when he was probably a teenager, was escorted up to the top of Mount Moriah by his father Abraham. And Abraham acted in unreserved obedience. An act of obedience that put him in the faith hall of fame in Hebrews 11. And that act consisted of Abraham taking his son up the mountain, tying him, binding him to a makeshift altar, and raising a knife to take his life at God's command. That was perhaps the greatest and the hardest act of obedience by any mortal man in history. When we look at what the writer of Hebrews says about that act of, of obedience, he says it proceeded from the same faith by which Abraham was justified. Faith in God's resurrection power and resurrection promise. Look at this. Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received them back as a type." Now that's an amazing statement, but it's actually very direct and not at all unclear. See, when God commanded Abraham to take Isaac up that mountain, to lay him on that altar, and to slay him, he was telling Abraham to to kill the very child through whom he had promised to give Abraham descendants. Isaac was the life that God raised up from Abraham's mostly dead body and Sarah's already dead womb. Isaac was the proof of God's resurrection power and resurrection promise to Abraham. And now God was telling Abraham to take that life. Do you ever find yourself arguing with God about whether the things he's doing in your life contradict his promises? You might expect Abraham who had originally laughed in disbelief when God told him he was going to give him a child through Sarah, to find cause to argue with God some when God told him to slay the covenant son. But by this point in Abraham's life, he had seen God Prove himself faithful to his covenant promises over and over and over again. In fact, it was God's faithfulness that created faith in the heart of Abraham with regard to God's promises. And by the way, I think that's yet another example of God calling into being that which did not exist. So when Abraham raised that knife to take the life of his covenant son, What was it that moved him to that unparalleled obedience? Well, verse 19 tells us exactly what it is. It says, he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. See, Abraham believed that the covenant-keeping God, who had already proven his resurrection power by bringing Isaac into existence in the first place, would have no problem raising Isaac from the dead if Abraham obeyed God. So instead of arguing with God about how this thing that God was commanding him to do looked like it was going to terminate his covenant promises, Abraham simply obeyed. (laughs) When you find yourself arguing with God about whether the things he's doing with you contradict his promises it might serve you well to go back and consider how Abraham acted when everything except the promise of God screamed out that what God was requiring of him made no sense. Now, what does the last part of verse 19 mean when it says, from which he also received him back as a type? Well, in the Bible, a type is something that foreshadows something else, that looks forward to something else yet to come. I believe the writer of Hebrews is saying that when God spared Isaac by providing a ram in the thicket, a substitute to take Isaac's place, and when he thus gave Isaac back to Abraham alive, that all of this foreshadowed the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one who died as our substitute in our place and whose resurrection guaranteed our resurrection. But it wasn't just the ram who foreshadowed Christ. It was Isaac. When Abraham bound Isaac on that altar, that was a picture of the death of Christ. And when God gave Isaac back to Abraham alive, that was a picture of the resurrection of Christ. In these verses in Hebrews 11, God sets Abraham before us as an example of faith that produced unreserved obedience. And that's what sanctification looks like when it happens. And just as was true of the faith by which Abraham was sanctified, was justified, the faith by which he was sanctified was also faith in the resurrection power and promise of God. All right, so it is resurrection faith that justifies, and it is resurrection faith that sanctifies. Hebrews 11.1 gives us a foundational definition of faith that we need to have firmly in mind it says now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen see faith is by definition forward-looking it's hopeful I'm going to camp out for a little while on this idea of the believers resurrection hope and I'm going to move rather quickly through the last several verses of Hebrews 10 and quite a few verses in Hebrews 11 in order to burn in something that I believe is critically important about this hope on which our faith is fixed. And as we look through this series of verses, I want you to have two questions in mind, and they're up there on the screen. First, over and over, the writer of Hebrews says that God's redeemed people in times past we're looking forward to something. The first question is, what was that something? Okay? What was it that they were looking forward to that radically changed the way they perceived things and acted in the here and now? Okay, the second question I'd like you to have in mind as we look at these verses is, what were these saints willing to endure and to do because they were looking forward instead of looking around. How did their anticipation of what lay ahead change their attitude and actions in the present? Okay, are those two questions pretty straightforward? You got them? Okay, here we go. We're going to move through these quickly. Hebrews 10, 32 to 37. This is right after a very stern warning. The writer says, But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Verses 13 to 16, Hebrews 11 All these, that is Abraham and those who preceded him in faith, died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore god is not ashamed to be called their god for he has prepared a city for them hebrews 11:35 to 40 women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All right, that's a lot of words, that's a lot of verses. Let's go back and try to distill out of that the answers to the two questions that I posed at the beginning. To what were the saints of old looking forward? that changed their outlook about this present life. Here's a a list gleaned from those verses. They were looking for a better possession and an abiding one. They were looking for a great reward, for something that was promised. They were looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. They were looking for these promises, having seen them and welcomed them from a distance, but not laying hold of them. They were looking for a country of their own, a better country, that is, a heavenly one. They were looking for a city which he, God, has prepared for them. They were looking for a better resurrection, for something better, and they were looking to be made perfect. All right, now look at that list. When will this reward come for which these saints were looking? When will they get the something better for which they had waited? Something they did not get to receive in their own lifetimes. When is it that they will be made perfect? When will they get to enter into that heavenly city for which they longed? When and how will all these great expectations be fulfilled? They will be fulfilled at the resurrection and they will not be fulfilled before the resurrection. What these people were willing to put up with and what they were willing to do because of what they knew lay ahead. How did their knowledge of what God had promised to them in the future change their behavior and their attitude in the present? First. They endured a great conflict of sufferings. They were made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. They became sharers with those who were so treated. They showed sympathy to prisoners. They accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. Abraham obeyed by going out to a place not knowing where he was going. Along with Isaac and Jacob, he lived as an alien in a foreign land dwelling in tents. These saints confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Some were tortured, not accepting their release. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, tempted, put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted and ill-treated. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Would you say that the lifestyle of these saints was different than the lives of most of the people around them? I think it was radically different. What was it that made their lives so different that made them think like this and act like this? It was their hope of something that they knew was coming, something infinitely better than anything that the world would ever offer to them. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Romans 8 verses 24 and 25 says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. Hope that is seen is not hope. If we are looking at anything in this cursed creation as a source of hope, then we don't even know what hope is. Because God says, hope that is seen is not hope. Hope never looks at the here and now. Hope, by definition, looks forward and it looks upward, heavenward. Now, some of you may be thinking, how long is this guy going to bore me with the obvious? I don't need anyone to tell me that hope is, by definition, forward-looking. But, beloved, if that's so obvious, if it is so self-evident, that our hope and thus our faith is supposed to be forward-looking and upward-looking, then why is it that we spend so much of our time with our eyes on the present? On the things that are cursed and failing and dying? Why is it that we expect to find any kind of peace or security or cause for rejoicing in the things that our eyes can see when God says that's not where those things are? Why is it that so many who say they believe in Jesus Christ spend their days in fear of what will happen later today or tomorrow or next week or next year? Why is it that so many believers live in fear of what some fellow mortal human being is doing or not doing? See, none of those things ultimately matter if we're truly not trusting or hoping in them. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Since then the children, we who are the children of God, share in flesh and blood. It says, He himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil." And he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Our culture is eaten up with the avoidance and denial of death because it is scared to death of death. Our culture is enslaved to the fear of death. It worships youth and it does everything it can to cover up every sign of old age. Hair color and chin tucks and Botox. And it clings to this life tooth and nail because this life is all it's got. Are we different from the world the way those saints of old were different? Sometimes we need to seriously ponder that question we have time to do cardio and to shop for vitamins but we don't have 30 minutes to dig into the word of god or to pray how it must grieve god when we whom he has redeemed by the blood of his own son act just like this world as if we are still enslaved to the fear of death What happens to people when they really place their hope in the resurrection? When the eyes of their hearts are firmly fixed, not on where they are, but on where they're headed. Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us what happens to people like that. We just looked at a long list of those things. And they don't act like most people. They don't act anything like most people. They readily lay down everything that they have, including their own physical lives, for the sake of something better that is coming. Hebrews eleven twenty four to 27 says this about Moses. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Now what did the passing pleasures of sin look like for Moses when he was a young man? If he had decided to hang on to those passing pleasures, that would make him one of the most powerful men in the most powerful empire of his day. It would mean that he could have pretty much everything that he could desire on this earth. Power, riches, honor, control, self-gratification. Think for for a moment about the lure of such overwhelming temptation. And then consider the truckloads of energy, effort, and anxiety that people invest today in getting just a little bit of power, just a modest level of control over their circumstances or their finances, just a few of the things that they desire. Moses had all that stuff handed to him at a level that most men would consider the stuff of fantasies. And he set them all aside. And why does God say he set them aside? Because he was looking to the reward. He endured as seeing him who is unseen. (laughs) Forward-looking and upward-looking hope radically changes a man's perspective and actions. Many years ago, I read Larry Crabb's book called Inside Out. One of the things that remained indelibly in my mind from that read was when he said that God intends for us to be disappointed by what we find in the here and now. (laughs) For us who belong to Christ, God will see to it that we're disappointed if our eyes are fixed on the fleeting things of this world. He has no intention of letting us find satisfaction in things that he knows cannot ultimately satisfy And you know what? That's grace. So when we who belong to Christ set our eyes on the riches and rewards of this world or on any of the many forms of self-indulgence that bewitch this world, we are guaranteed to be grievously disappointed. Those who are of this world will find lots of satisfaction for a time in those things, but we will not. And that's grace. At the end of Hebrews 11, the writer turns up the intensity as he wraps up his declaration about how people who are looking forward to the resurrection hope behave. And I'm going to read part of this we read before, but I'm going to read this again in its context, verses 32 to 40, in two chunks. What more shall I say? For time will fail me, the writer says, if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Those are the good things, the things that look like successes. And then verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, ill-treated, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. You know why these saints in ages past won't be made perfect apart from us? It's because we're all going to get made perfect at the same time, at the resurrection. Now, I'll grant that 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 which Revelation 20 calls the first resurrection may occur in a couple of phases but those phases are going to happen pretty close together and in the grand scheme of the ages it's viewed as one event Romans 8:19 Paul said the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of god on the day when all of us whom god has redeemed by grace through faith from every age of mankind are glorified the day that we receive our resurrection bodies, on that day creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so the saints who went before us didn't get to lay hold of that which was promised apart from us because that which was promised is the resurrection life that brings us bodily into the glorious presence of God, having put sin away from us forever. He's the one who put it away. And we're all going to lay hold of that promise at the same time. These saints who went before us, whom the writer of Hebrews lays out for us as examples of people who lived out their faith, were set apart from this world. They were radically different. Whether they escaped the sword or whether they were put to death by the sword. Whether they shut the mouths of lions or whether they were clothed in sheepskins and fed to lions. Whether they became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight or whether they had to wander around in deserts and mountains and hide in caves and holes in the ground. Those saints lived with great clarity of purpose. They lived with power and heroism and perseverance because their eyes were on the prize. They cared nothing about the rewards of this world. And not only did they not care about the things of this world, they were not threatened by the things of this world. Hebrews 11.35 says that some of those believers in the early days of Christianity could have avoided torture and mockings and imprisonment. But they did not accept their own release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. How do you think the world looks at a man who's faced with a terrible punishment for a charge that he could easily get out of simply by living the same way almost everyone around him is living? Yet rather than accepting that release and freedom he chooses instead to endure torture mockings, scourgings, chains, and imprisonment for something he can't even see. How blessed or successful or wise do you think the world considers people who ended up being stoned to death or sawn in two or put to death with the sword when they could have taken a far easier path just by being normal instead of weird? People who went through their earthly lives destitute, Afflicted, ill-treated in mountains and caves and holes in the ground when they could have had lives of comfort and convenience just by going with the flow and doing what everyone else was doing. (laughs) But you know what? The writer of of Hebrews sees things from the complete opposite perspective, a perspective that cares nothing about the opinion of this world or what it thinks of us, it considers instead the opinion of those faithful saints who have gone before us and who now look upon what we're doing today. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus The author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. (laughs) How do you suppose those saints whom the writer of Hebrews describes, that marvelous cloud of witnesses that's watching what we're doing now, would assess the church that they would find if they were here among us today? What do you suppose they would think of what we call devout Christianity? What would they say to a church that's been comfortable for so long that it's forgotten how to be uncomfortable? What would they say to a church that has become so concerned about being perceived by the world as tolerant that it has turned Jesus Christ from a stumbling stone and a rock of offense into a pebble of annoyance? What would they think of churches filled with people who are more concerned about having their needs met than they are about laying down their lives to further the gospel of Jesus Christ and encouraging their brothers and sisters in Christ toward greater submission to God with a view to that which is laid up for us in heaven. If we don't want to become lukewarm and useless like the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, if we don't want the lampstand of our witness to be taken away, then we would do well to read over and over again God's commendation of the faith of our forerunners in Hebrews 11 and in Acts and in numerous passages in both Testaments and to ask ourselves if our faith translates into lives that look like theirs. If we want faith to work uh, work itself out with that same kind of uncompromising obedience, then we have to resolutely stop looking for hope in the here and now. And we have to constantly fix our eyes on the hope that is set before us in Jesus Christ. That's the only hope that will never disappoint. (laughs) What are you willing to do today and for the rest of your life because of the resurrection power and the resurrection promise of God? Now, if you're here today and you don't know anything about this hope that we've been talking about from God's word, if you don't know how to get there, i gonna point you back for a moment to John 14, verses 1 through 6. I don't have a slide for it, but you can turn there if you'd like. This one has been cited. It was cited earlier in the worship. John 14. Jesus is speaking and he says, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And his disciple Thomas said to him then, Lord, we do not know where you are going, nor do we know the way. (laughs) Right after Jesus told him that he did. And Jesus then said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me." If you want to know the way to this hope that we've been talking about, this hope that does not disappoint, this hope that makes the things of this world fade away, that transforms us, that gives us eternal life, it lays that, that, that hope is found only in one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And I pray that today might be the day that you take God at his word, that you trust in the one sacrifice for sin, the only sacrifice for sin that is sufficient, the death of Jesus Christ if you'll take Him at His word, if you'll trust in Him alone as your Savior, then you will receive His righteousness as a gift. He will cover your sin with His righteousness. And you will be made acceptable to Him forever. And then you will begin a journey this side of heaven for however long you remain. It is unlike anything that you've ever experienced before. And He will call you to lay down your life, to take up his cross, and to follow him. He'll give you the power to do that. He'll give you the reason to do that. He will give you the vision to do that as you simply keep your eyes on the one who has saved you. Father, I do pray that this... Resurrection Day might be the day of salvation for someone here. Father, what a glorious, what an amazing gift you've given to us in Jesus Christ. A life that can never be taken away from us because it's your life. Father, thank you that that the faith to which you call us justifies us in your eyes that it sanctifies us and moves us toward greater holiness day by day and then it brings about our glorification and we look forward to that day when we will be glorified that day when all of creation will be set free from slavery to corruption into the glory of the children of God We look forward to that day when we will see our Savior face to face. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.